Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the first in a series of reports commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing in 2019. Bill Hike worked in the space program for 40 years and was inspired by President John F. Kennedy's challenge to send a man to the moon. I thought it was amazing, and I'll be honest, I still get goosebumps every time I hear recordings of that speech. It was such a, an incredible attempt. I mean, it was far beyond what anybody thought we could do, and yet we turned around and did it. We'll discuss the complicated career of Florida Governor and U.S. Senator Spessard Holland. You know, we really don't know where he kind of stood, and he was silent on a lot of major issues that affected the state of Florida. And 2019 marks the 10th anniversary of Florida Frontiers. We'll celebrate with an excerpt from our very first program from the first week of January 2009. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Touchdown brings me round again to find. I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. In July 1969, the Apollo 11 mission left the east coast of Florida and successfully landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon and successfully returned to the Earth with crewmate Michael Collins. We'll have a series of reports in the months leading up to the 50th anniversary of this milestone event in human history. Bill Hank had a 40-year career in the space program. I started working in the business uh, as a, as a part-time employee for Convair in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I went to college at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, worked part-time for Convair, got a little bit of a feel about what aerospace was all about. And when I graduated in 1962, I, the best offer I got was from Convair, and so I took it, and they sent me to Vandenberg Air Force Base to learn how to launch atlases, or at least that was the story. I get out there, I'm a, a, probably late June of 62. I'm just a young, wet behind the ears college graduate. And I'm working with a group of, of guys and one afternoon the telephone rings on one of the guy's desks. He answers it, mumbles a few things, leaped out of his seat as he hung up and he says, that was a friend letting me know there's a Thor launch gonna happen in 20 minutes down at pad something or other, I don't remember the the pad and it was quite a ways across the base down by the water. So we jumped in a government car and raced across the base to get down there. Unlike anything today, there were no roadblocks, there was nothing. We parked the car on, the, on a, what like was a country road on the base and right across the street was the pad. We walked across the street, stood at about an eight or 10 foot chain link fence and looked at this rocket, all looking ready to go, fully loaded. Uh, and a big plume of gaseous oxygen coming out of the boil-off valve. So we watched it, no PA, no idea when it's gonna happen. 
But we knew that when the boil-off valve closed, that meant that they were going to flight pressure in the LOX tank and they were going to fly pretty soon. So that happened, we watched, and all of a sudden the bottom of that rocket erupted in a cloud of smoke and fire and a thunderous roar. And the heat on our face was so intense, we had to turn our backs to it for the first 10 seconds. We've turned around and looked. By that time, the rocket looks like it's right straight above us. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I've seen pictures of these things blowing up, and this might not be a good place to be. Well, these guys are old hands. They wouldn't have us here if it was dangerous. My God, I found out later that none of them had been there a year, you know, so they were not old hands. Anyway, we watched that rocket fly skyward, pitch over and head off to the south, I think going into a polar orbit of some sort. And I, I was hooked. Uh, I don't know whether it was the, the fire, the smoke, the noise, probably a combination of all three, the pounding on your chest from the rocket exhaust. I never again, for the rest of my 40 years in the business, ever had a desire to do anything other than launch rockets. And luckily, I was able to follow that passion for the rest of my career. Hike's last position in the space program was as Boeing's site director for the shuttle program at the Kennedy Space Center. As his career was just beginning, Hike was inspired by the words of President John F. Kennedy in May 1961. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. I thought it was amazing, and I'll be honest, I still get goosebumps every time I hear recordings of that speech. It was such a, an incredible attempt. I mean, it was far beyond what anybody thought we could do, and yet we turned around and did it. Hike says that people who worked in the early days of the space program had an incredible work ethic. It wasn't just a nine-to-five job. We worked incredibly long hours, generally up before sunrise and not home until it was very dark. Uh, we worked Fridays and Saturdays. Sometimes we got paid overtime, sometimes we didn't. We didn't care. We were on a mission and, and we were going to go make it happen. And uh, we did. I, had, I, I have a, a, a semi-unfond memory of those days because quite often I would get home late in the evening, 8.30 or 9 o'clock. We had two small kids by that time. My wife was very good. She would make sure that there was a plate of dinner left for me. But by the time I got home, it was cold. And it was before the days of microwave. So your choice was you turn the oven on and heat it up and wait 20 or 30 minutes or you eat it cold. And I had to get back up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to go back to work. So I ate it cold. Well, on at least two occasions, when I sat down at the kitchen table, there would be pictures of my children in front of me with a note from my wife that says, this is what your kids look like if you ever get home early enough to see them. And that was what life was like in those days. And it, it, we, were, we were on a mission and we made it happen. Hank has been married for 55 years, but he says that many marriages didn't survive the space program ending in divorce. There was a space race between the USA and Russia to be the first to put a man on the moon. Some felt a sense of urgency to beat Russia, but Hank didn't fixate on that. Yes and no. I, I think in the background we were all very much aware of it, 
but it, it wasn't a driving factor. We knew what our schedule was and what we had to accomplish, what, what we had to get ready so that it would be ready to fly and the schedules we were working to. And uh, uh, so, yeah, we knew that we were in a space race with Russia. It wasn't, I don't think, a driving force on a day-to-day -day basis. In July of 1969, the hard work and dedication of Heinck and his colleagues began a new era of human history as the Apollo 11 mission took off from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Two, one, zero, all Still hard to believe. It just was was too much. Uh, you know, it was it was late at night. Uh, we're watching grainy TV pictures from the surface of the moon. We realize that they've made it. That that uh, he and Buzz are safely on the moon, and uh, it was it was almost surreal. You know, it, my God, we finally did it. It happened. And uh, like I say, uh, I personally am somewhat of an emotional person, and. Uh, it was a very emotional moment. Heinck says that there were many accidents and mistakes along the way, but that learning from them made the success of the Apollo program possible. During a unmanned uh, tanking test of the original Saturn V, which was not a flight vehicle, 500F, uh, we ruptured a 14-inch diameter line coming out of the liquid oxygen tank and we drained 850,000 gallons of liquid oxygen out on the ground across an asphalt road, and there was nothing we could do. We just had to sit and wait three and a half hours until it, it drained. Uh, it, was, it was an exciting experience. But we got through it. We, uh, we went back in, made major modifications to the liquid oxygen storage area uh, over the period of the next month. Worked back-to-back -back 12s that entire time period, seven days a week, to get the place put back together, and next time we loaded, we had no trouble at all. The work of Heinck and many others led to one of the most significant moments in human history, but at the time, he was just focused on the job at hand. In retrospect now, there's no question but what we were making history. Uh, at the time, uh, we were working like crazy, uh, day to day to day to, to accomplish the mission, which was to do for the president what he had our, our, at that point our deceased president had challenged us to do, and that was get men to the moon and return them safely within this, and I love the word he used, decade. I guess that's how you pronounce it in, in New England. And, and so that's, that's what we were off to do, and it, I don't think anybody ever realizes the full historical significance of what they're doing until you've had a time for it to weather and get 10 years under your belt and look back and say, wow, we really did that? The space program has had an ongoing economic impact on what has become known as the Space Coast, both positive and negative. 
back in the uh, in the sixties, uh, it was an up period. We were we were going like crazy. Jobs were very plentiful. People used to change jobs on a regular basis, and uh, you know get a few extra dollars by working for another company. We had massive employment during the early days of Apollo. We started phasing down, and we went down. By the time we launched uh, Apollo Soyuz in 1975, we were near rock bottom, and jobs were scarce. The, the housing market was a disaster. You couldn't sell a house. Shuttle came along. We started hiring big time again. Went through another big buildup and then a slow decay. And when shuttle ended, uh, what, seven, eight years ago now, uh, it was like the bottom fell out. And now we're building up again and the new world order here in the space business is private contractors. We're not dependent upon on a NASA team to make it happen. The private contractors are making it happen. Ups and downs is how I would describe it. As the exploration of space continues with both government and private sector programs, the Space Coast of Florida remains an active center for those efforts. Bill Heink. What I'd like to see happen next is get some American spacecraft capable of flying American astronauts back up to our space station. The last thing we want to have happen is have to leave that place unmanned for a while. The experts say it would probably be okay. That's scary to think about. So we need as rapidly as possible to get something in our commercial crew program flying, and that will either be the Boeing CST-100, uh, which will fly on top of an Atlas V, or uh, SpaceX's uh, Dragon that would fly on top of a Falcon. And uh, those both are expected to occur sometime next year, and we can't do it soon enough. We need to make it happen. Bill Heink worked in the space program for 40 years. This was the first in a series of reports to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing in 2019. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program from the past 10 years. You can also watch archived editions of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Spessard Holland is a familiar name from Florida political history. Those unfamiliar with his career may still recognize his name from the East-West Expressway in Central Florida. The 408 is named after him. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Spessard Holland was a man of contradictions. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, Spencer Holland was the 28th governor of the state of Florida. He was a native Floridian born in Bartow in Polk County in 1892. Uh, he attended public schools in and around Bartow and Polk County, eventually went to Emory College, now Emory University up in Atlanta, Georgia, but came back to Florida and earned a law degree from the University of Florida. And before he began practicing law, however, he was involved in the First World War. He uh, volunteered for service and uh, was actually a uh, reconnaissance pilot and flew over enemy lines. It was actually shot down, but came back to Florida and, and practiced law through the 1920s and established a, a fairly successful law firm in Polk County before he decided to enter the, the political realm and uh, was first elected to the Florida State Senate, where he served for, for eight years. And that's really where he started a lot of his initiatives that would kind of stick with him for most of his career. And, and one of those was the benefits and, and compensation for public school teachers. Now, his mother was actually a public school teacher, and it may have stemmed from that, but he really pushed for a better system for the public education throughout the state of Florida uh, during the Great Depression at a fairly difficult time. So he served in the uh, state Senate. He briefly left uh, office, served in various other uh, local public positions, and it wasn't until 1940 that he decided to run for governor uh, and was, of course, elected in 1940, inaugurated in January of 1941. And uh, according to his first message to the state legislature, uh, he says here, quote, It is not necessary for me to remind you of the fact that we meet at an hour of grave national crisis, unquote. And of course, he's talking about what would become the the Second World War and U.S. involvement in the Second World War. So by his first year in office, the U.S. had declared war on Germany and Japan, and Florida became a major part of the domestic war effort. So a lot of his administration was wrapped up in civil defenses and the buildup of military installations throughout Florida. But he also was dealing with a period period of serious racial violence and, and difficulties within the state of Florida. And as governor, he, he really didn't do a lot to stand up for the rights of African Americans, especially when it came to segregation within the state of Florida. And when he started bringing in troops and, and building up these military installations, there were instances of violence where he, he essentially was silent on a lot of these issues. So this is where he kind of falls into the quintessential Southern Dixiecrat. These were the, the Southern Democrats who were very much uh, pro-states, rights, but also pro-segregation. So he was leading the state at that time period and, and really didn't kind of weigh in on these issues. Some other kind of controversial issues, he, he was a big supporter of the establishment of the Everglades National Park in the 1940s. But at the same time, he also supported the Cross Florida Barge Canal initiative. And, and he did that for the rest of his political career, even though at the time there were serious environmental concerns. So there's a little bit of this conflict in the way that he decided to lead the state of Florida. Now, Spessard Holland was a governor of Florida, but he actually served longer as a U.S. senator, right? Yeah, that's right. He only served that one term as governor, essentially saw Florida uh, through the Second World War, and then decided to run for a a U.S. Senate seat. Charles Andrews was planning to retire. And actually, as it it occurred, uh, Charles Andrews died in office a few months before he would have left the office, and Spessard Holland was appointed to that position. And then a few months later, he won the election handedly. And that began a a 25-year career in the U.S. Senate. And that's really probably where 
where Holland's lasting legacy lies is is with his role in the U.S. Senate. He was instrumental in sponsoring the uh, bill that would become the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would uh, make it unconstitutional for poll taxes. And he actually fought for that way back in the 1930s in Florida because Florida, believe it or not, in the 1930s still mandated a tax at the polls. So people had to pay in order to vote. And he fought to uh, have that eliminated in the state of Florida. But then when he became a U.S. senator, he fought for that at the national level and, of course, became that U.S. constitutional amendment. He fought for teachers' rights, some environmental issues in Florida, infrastructure issues in Florida. And again, he served in that position for 25 years. So he didn't step down until 1971 uh, when another influential Floridian by the name of Lawton Childs took his seat and began another very long career in the U.S. Senate seat. So it was a very powerful seat. He sat on a number of commissions. But again, throughout his career, and this is somebody who has such a long political career, there were always these kind of conflicts, and we can look at it in a lot of different ways. Again, he had very complicated ideas when it came to racial relations. When the U.S. Supreme Court handed down the famous Brown versus Board of Education decision, Spessard Holland was one of the U.S. senators, along with dozens of other representatives and senators, who signed what became known as the Southern Manifesto that was in defense of the practice of segregation within primarily the South, including Florida. What we're looking at, we have a collection of documents here, too, and we're actually looking at a Washington report that was published in July of 1965. And this deals directly with his decision to vote in favor for U.S. involvement or increased involvement in the Vietnam War. And this is, again, July of 1965. And he's siding with President Johnson and saying, yes, we need to uh, push and and send more troops into Vietnam. He would later reverse this decision, and, and he really regretted his vote for that involvement. And, you know, his career is, again, very kind of interesting, eclectic. He fought for a lot of ideas, but there are a lot of things that, you know, we really don't know where he kind of stood. And he was silent on a lot of major issues that affected the state of Florida. I mentioned the East-West Expressway in Central Florida bearing Spessard Holland's name. Is he recognized in other ways around the state? Yes, he is. In fact, there's a golf course named after him. There are several schools named after him. The administrative building at the University of Florida's law school, which was his alma mater, is named after Spessard Holland. U.S. Highway 17 that runs through Bartow is named the Spessard Holland Parkway. And he received honorary degrees. I mean, anybody who served in that position that long certainly received this kind of uh, recognition. And he, he really has a very lasting legacy because he was incredibly influential, not only as a governor, but also as a senator on Florida in the 20th century, when we experienced a tremendous amount of growth and change, he was one of the leaders of the state during that time. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the documents we've been talking about regarding Spessard Holland, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. 2019 marks the 10th anniversary of Florida Frontiers. To celebrate, we thought we'd revisit a portion of our very first program that aired during the first week of January 2009. Patrick Smith, author of the beloved Florida novel A Land Remembered, died in 2014. In 2009, he discussed the writing of his most popular book on Florida Frontiers.
it was to explore a lot of issues about Florida, and two, I wanted to make that family real, to show the reader what they went through. You know, not just tell them it was a great freeze in 1895, but how did this affect that family? And how were they affected by the coming of the railroads, the birth of the cattle industry, and the Civil War, and then later on, how were they affected by that great land boom down in Miami in the 1920s, and that hurricane that did Lake Okeechobee in 1928 and killed over 2,000 people. These are all things that really happened in Florida, but the important thing to me was to show how they affected people. In Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered, the McGivey family faces one adversity after another, trying to create a ranch and orange grove in the rough Florida wilderness. After three generations of respecting the land and its native inhabitants, the last generation of McGiveys makes a fortune by developing Florida land with no regard for the environmental impact. Smith says that the McGiveys are not based on any one Florida family. The, the composites of a lot of different families. I met a lot of families when I was traveling around in Florida doing research that resemble the McGivey family. They came here back in the 19th century they live that kind of life. But I've had at least a dozen families in this state swear to me that that book is about their family, you know, they identify with it. A Land Remembered has not been used without controversy in Florida schools. A student-friendly version was created for younger readers, eliminating curse words and the racially insensitive N-word from the text. The book has accumulated many accolades, and Patrick Smith has been placed in the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. Some of the letters, you know, that I get about this novel are really, really touching, heartbreaking. I got a letter one time that a man, when he was dying of cancer, her father, all he wanted to hear before he died was his favorite passage out of a land remembered. And she read it to him, and he died while she was reading that. I got an email yesterday from a young man in Iraq. He said that he took his book over with him when he went over there. He's in the Army. He said he's read it seven times since he's been in Iraq. He said it's now kind of worn out by wind and sand of the desert, but he's ordered another one so he can keep reading. I've got just literally hundreds of letters from young kids in this state who have read that, you know, in the third through the eighth grade. And they all say that before they read it, they had no interest in Florida history. They knew nothing about this state. And now they're very eager to learn all they can about Florida. It's gratifying. People have been writing about Florida since the first non-indigenous people started coming here in the 1500s. Over the past 200 years, renowned novelists with work set in Florida range from James Fenimore Cooper and William Gilmore Sims to Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings and Zora Neale Hurston. But arguably, no Florida novel is more revered and loved than Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered. Morris O'Sullivan is the Kenneth Curry Professor of Literature at Rollins College. He is co-editor of The Florida Reader and Florida Poetry, A History of the Imagination, and author of other books about Florida literature. Patrick Smith's book really does stand alone. I actually first heard about it from Sloan Wilson, who became a cult figure for his novel, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, which was turned into a very popular film with Gregory Peck. And Sloan moved to Central Florida in the late 1970s 
since he was here, we asked him to teach a creative writing course. I got to know him fairly well. And one day, he confided to me that his real reason for moving to Florida was that he wanted to write the great Florida book. He wanted to do for Florida what James Michener had done for Hawaii and Texas. A couple of years later, Sloan told me he was leaving. He was going back north. And I asked him why and reminded him about the Florida book. He asked me if I had read A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith. I said no. And he said, the epic Florida novel has been written. Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered remains one of the most popular Florida novels ever written. That was an excerpt from the very first episode of Florida Frontiers that aired 10 years ago during the first week of January 2009. You can find all of our programs on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Many people have helped to make Florida Frontiers possible over the past decade, including Janie Gould, Bill Dudley, and Robert Casanello. Today, production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week and a happy new year. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.